This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. We're continuing our series on cases that have affected us, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by one of my close friends, John Yoon. John Yoon is an assistant professor at University of Pennsylvania, the oldest medical school in America. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, guys. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. We had Greg Basil on and, and we got a perspective of someone a little bit earlier in their training and you are early in your job. So tell me how things are going at UPenn. Yeah, no, things are going well. Um, you know, I began, uh, joined the practice about three years ago. So I'm entering already at three years. It's kind of um, been a, a, a sort of fascinating transition. A lot of things uh, I learned along the way. And um, yeah, really, the, the practice has began to um, began to really pick up. And interestingly, you know, because of the COVID, uh, things have kind of um, waxed and waned. But finally, I think the, uh, things have improved and I'm building a practice um, slowly and uh, with a lot of good support at, at University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's great. You know, Mike Apuzo, who's one of my mentors, always told me the first three years are the hardest three years of a neurosurgeon's life. So let's dive into this. Uh, tell us about a case that really affected you. Yeah. So, you know, I, I really gave a lot of thoughts on you know, what case to talk about. And, um, and, and I didn't want to choose a case that, you know, there's a lot of cases um, that, that really stuck with me. But I really want to talk about a case that I, I personally learned a lot from. And, and in this case uh, happened when I sort of in the beginning of uh, my, my, my new career at Penn. So um, I first met uh, this really sweet lady. Um, she was uh, 64 years young, uh, in clinic approximately about one year and five months after I started at Penn. And she was actually referred to me by one of our neurosurgeon colleagues at Lancaster, um, Dr. Nick Hernandez, who was a partner with Dr. Chris, Chris uh, Kager, who was on the podcast recently. Uh, you know, by this point, uh, I was you know, 17 months out from the uh, uh, practice. I was gaining momentum. I was feeling confident. Um, and by like a world standard, this was when we're sort of climbing out of the COVID um, and the practice at Penn began to really pick up. So I see this lady, um, she was um, uh, quite debilitated. Uh, she had undergone three prior lumbar surgeries. She had L2 to 5 laminectomy, then fusions. Then about for two years, she began to have a really difficulty walking. Um, and for the past two years, she was using a walker uh, but then even that became really difficult. So by the time I saw her in clinic, she was in a wheelchair um, and, and she had a severe um, you know, weakness in the leg, uh, signs of myelopathy. And the imaging showed that she had really broken down above her fusion. She had L2 to 5 fusion, but thoracic spine and the spinal cord was smashed. Uh, she had a lot of uh, stenosis. She had signs of myelomalacia, T2's hyperintensity. On top of that, she had a um, severe degenerative scoliosis. Um, coronally and sagittally, she was really leaning forward about 120 uh, millimeters forward. 
So, um, you know, at this point, um, you know, she had a very loving family, a lot of healthcare workers in the family. So we had a long discussion. Um, and, and basically, she had a you know, proximal junction of failure, about refusion. On top of that, severe cord, spinal cord compression. Um, so I feel like we had to do something. Uh, yeah, background, so, so John, at, at this point when you're seeing her in clinic, you know, you, you've got somebody who's got a complicated picture like you described. She's affected clinically. She's had multiple surgeries. Revision is no small thing. So at that early point in your career, I mean, you're, you're a year out, but you're still a young attending. How are you feeling when you see her this affected by it, when you see her imaging and realize how large and complex of a case this might wind up being for you? Yeah, so exactly. So, you know, when I see something like this, where I think there's a lot of complex nuance to the case, um, I pick up the phone. So, you know, here's a lady that's really a race against time at this point. She's clearly losing function um, and she's becoming myelopathic. On the background, she's got this horrible deformity. Uh, and then and her BMI was 49 at this point. So, you know, I pick up the phone call. I phoned a friend. Um, I talked to my senior partners, uh, Bill Welch, Ali Osterk, and Dr. Wang. I, I call everybody and I call my colleagues and then bounce off the ideas. Um, and we have open discussions about, you know, what should I do? Um, how long should I go? Should I address the compression, deformity at the same time? And then I also presented this at the uh, spine conference um, and then get everyone's opinions. Um, so whenever I see something very, really complex, um, I, I still do this today that I like to get other people's opinions. And then, then I can decide with other people's opinions that I can decide, okay, I want, this is what I want to do. So I did that. And, um, and after talking to everybody, and I think everyone agreed that something needed to be done um, and, and, and because she was losing function. Um, and, but her BMI was a big factor. So she had, she had BMI 49. Uh, she also had a gastric bypass. So it's really hard to lose weight at this point. So I decided to do this surgery um, along with my, um, one of the deformity partner. And at, at that time, my surgical plan was to come from the side one day, do a lateral fusion, and then the, the day afterwards, come back and finish the, doing the correction um, and sort of like break the uh, surgery into two smaller ones. Um, and in, the, in the meantime, um, get her to nutritionist, do the weight loss as best as she can do uh, so, so that we can make the surgery a little bit safer. The surgery was scheduled and penciled in. So at this point, you know, surgery was scheduled, but then I get a call from the ER about, about a month after I saw her in clinic. And, um, and then my residents call me about this lady. Uh, and in the ER, she's now unable to um, move her extremities. Uh, she's becoming a lot weaker. She spent most of her days sitting down, laying down. Um, she, not, she was ambulatory with a walker in clinic. And now she's, she's not able to stand up. Um, and to her credit, her BMI in the ER was 45. So she went from 49 to 45. Uh, she lost 
Uh, she went from 220 to 204. So, you know, that's pretty impressive that she was able to lose weight with that amount of in the disabled mobility. So when I saw her in the ER that day, um, at this point, I thought that we could not wait any longer. Uh, this is only about a month from the time that I saw her. And she was really becoming paralyzed uh, in front of my very eyes. So I decided to do the surgery. Um, and um, instead of doing, I, I did change the surgical plan um, because she was having sort of a uh, rather rapid myelopathy. I decided not to do the lateral portion because if something were to happen during the lateral case, a, whether it is a uh, vessel injury, bowel injury, all the risk of the lateral fusion, I didn't want that to prevent me from doing a posterior surgery. So I decided to do everything posterior. And my plan was to decompress her thoracic spinal cord and then get done as much as I can. And the first day, if I don't get to the uh, three-column osteotomy, then I come back and do the uh, finish the case at a later date. So... Um, and this, this, this case was, um, discussed and I, I start the case. Um, and, and, and going in, you know, I knew that this was, um, you know, T3 to pelvis with L, you know, L2 to five prior effusion, plan to do PSO at L2, huge case. So mentally prepared. And I knew that this is going to be one of the biggest cases that I do as a, uh, as an attending. Yeah, so maybe if you could put yourself back in your mindset at that moment, I mean, obviously, this is not the surgery you wanted to do. This is not the perfect, pristine plan you had for this patient who, as you pointed out, was medically complicated. But here, natural history and her progression has forced your hand into doing something that, as you described, seems more expedient and more perhaps pragmatically safe so you can achieve what she really needs. As you say, this is a big case. You're a junior attending going into this. How do you feel about the fact that what you wanted to do for this lady, both to optimize her for any surgery and the surgery you wanted to give her has been snatched away from you? Yeah, you know, there, there was a moment of sort of uncertainty um, when I when she came back, you know, before she came back, I had all this plan, you measure all the angles and you really study the films to to max, right? You you go back to it, you kind of replay it in your head, and then all of a sudden, there's there's new turns and twists, and you have to change the entire course of that treatment. And but first and foremost, I thought that that I could not take um, if I had gone with my original plan that I I could potentially do her um, disservice. Like I may not be able to achieve. The perfect radiographic scan that I that wanted, uh, or or maybe a when she, if she was not myelopathic, um, I had that luxury of getting an even better correction. But the sort of the priorities change, so I think you have to be flexible enough to change the plan to sort of better address uh, the the most urgent thing. So at this point, I, I thought that the most urgent thing is to create enough room for her spinal cord. And then sort of deformity correction was sort of a secondary. Um, and, 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 and that's what I uh, felt like that she needed the most. And, um, and then so I changed the plan um, after, you know, of course, that I had about a day to think about it. 
And I, I felt like I was able to probably achieve the better overall uh, result for her than doing this two-stage operation. So, um, so I, I started the case, um, you know, went really well, uh, put in all the screws from T2 to pelvis, free-handed with the fluoroscopy, uh, remove all the prior instrumentation from two to five, replace these screws. Um, and, and by that time I was probably into about five, six hours of case, um, in not, not a huge, a lot of blood loss. She was stable. So, um, I, I was able to dissect out the pedicle very well. L2 I was like, okay, you know, things are going well. Let's just go for the PSO at this time. So I began the PSO, closed down the osteotomy, complete the case. Everything went really well. Radiographic um, post-ops looked great. Intra-op great. Post-op looked great. EBL was about two liters. Um, and she you know, transfused her uh, red, pl uh, um, red blood cells, some blood product. I did give her TXA, uh, which was a, a you know, preload dose. Um, the total case length was about 10 hours, but felt great. Afterwards... She got transferred to the ICU, expated the next day. At this point, I'm feeling great about myself. Correction looks good. Surgery went well. Extubated. Patient's doing wonderful. Um, then the ro kind of roller coaster began the following days. Um, in the post-op day two, she began to have tachycardia, found to have a non-occlusive pulmonary embolism, but no hemo hemodynamic instability. So we, you know, consulted um, ICU, cardiology, started on um, low molecular weight heparin, heparin and, and anticoagulation. And then she makes out of the ICU, post-op day three, uh, progressing well. And I know post-op day four, I go out of town. Uh, I went on a trip. And then, you know, I, I get daily updates. Whenever I, I have these patients in the um, in post-ops. I'm always checking, checking to make sure that everything's going well um, and everything's going well. And post-op day eight, uh, overnight, um, she was found unresponsive on the floor by a nurse, stat anesthesia, chest compression, intubated back to the ICU, uh, ABGs look terrible, lactates uh, elevated, pressors. I mean, I got this update um, sort of mil middle of the night, um, around midnight, and sort of I, I couldn't sleep. You know, the world kind of became upside down. I was constantly checking the phone. And I was like, what is going on? INR is elevated. And she had this developed this um, skin blister, sort of bloody bullets all over her body. Um, and she, um, you know, remained intubated, um, and she developed some kind of a hit like, um, some syndrome, like DIC that kind of went into DIC from a low molecular weight heparin. Um, and we don't know for sure, um, because her antibody for hit was negative. Uh, but she had developed sort of bleeding all over her body. So she, we had to stop um, all of her anticoagulation. Um, 
IR came in, put in the filter to the, for the risk of having a DVT or something like that. They throw the clots. And then she was intubated. Um, I really thought that was gonna, she wasn't going to make it out of the ICU. And, and, and after that, I came back to the Philly, um, went to see her, and it was just, you know, at that point, you know, I just felt terrible that I, I, I was beginning to sort of second guess myself that did I make the right call to even operate on this lady? Should I have done something different? And, um, you know, because of something that happened, non-occlusive PE, that made her, uh, made, made us kind of start her on a low molecular weight heparin, then she developed this bleeding episodes, then intubation. And then this caused another complication, which was all this hematoma all over her wound. So her wounds start to break down. So... You know, at this point, you know, she was intubated, extubated, has this reaction. She develops a uh, UTI and then pneumonia. And then this hematoma has become sort of seeded with infection. So I'm not, I'm now looking at this huge, huge complications that happen after what is seemed to be a perfectly executed surgery. So... You know, at this point, um, you know, I I come back um, and and this is a, about they. You know, she's she's remained um, in the hospital this whole time. You know, she make makes out of the ICU. We know that she had this wound problem, but we we um, consult plastic and we just pack it, place a wound vac, which eventually breaks down in the few, in uh, in post op day forty five. So I had to take her to the OR, wash the wound a couple times. So in total, I had to go back and wash her wound three times and uh, eventually get it closed. So um, after this surgery, you know, in total, she remained in the hospital in and out for a total of a nine months. Uh, she was hospitalized in the, in total, her stay in the hospital is four months out of the nine months. And, and really, you know, she couldn't get out of the hospital because of the wound problem and, and the UTI, all this infection. Um, so, you know, as a young surgeon, when you have these complications, you begin to sort of hear rumblings around you. I, I felt so paranoid at this point that others are judging. And, and then there was, I think the fear of failure kind of really took over me for the you know, few weeks there. Um, and it seemed very palpable to me when I was walking through the hall. Uh, and in my case, I felt like everything was executed perfectly in the OR. But these PEs and uh, small complications or relatively small complications, uh, but then it led to the another one and it led to a um, this bleeding episodes, then infection, wound, wound complications. So... Uh, that really un- began to unravel her post-operatively. And, and when something like this happened, you feel like everyone around you, you, you would hope that they empathize with you, but, uh, but you feel kind of alone, even if people do. And my senior partners, my friends and colleagues, um, I have talked to them a lot about this case, and, um, and, and, and they do, but you still feel alone. 
um, they with, even with the great support that you feel like you may have made a wrong choice. Well, John, there so, are, there are a lot of lessons in what you're talking about. I mean, obviously, as you said, this was a technically perfectly executed surgery, and then this cascade of horrible events that turned into a, a giant snafu all came from post-operative care and post-op, uh, post-operative medical complications. So I think that that has to remind anyone listening that we all have to be doctors before we're surgeons and surgeons before we're neurosurgeons. But I, I'm really struck by something you just said where, you know, you had this fear of failure throughout this whole period, this fear that I'm sure was instilled by executing something perfectly and nevertheless having this horrible outcome and living with that. So I wonder if you could talk about in the days that this lady's still in the hospital and each day you're getting more updates and you're washing her out and she's getting this infection and you're, you're carrying this burden, as you describe, what was it like going to work every day and taking care of your other patients and being in the operating room, trying to focus on helping someone else while this other lady's case was still weighing on you in real time? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think that's a very good, um, all the thoughts that I was running through my head was that, you know, stuff like this never leaves you. And that's, her case uh, really stuck with me because I still think about it to this day. Um, and, you know, you, initially you go through this period of sort of self-doubt and, and yeah, um, it, in the beginning, um, after um, her case went south, I still had elective cases that I had to do. Um, and there is that period of, um, in the beginning, I was feeling very paranoid. What, what mistake am I going to make again, even if everything appeared to be perfect in the OR? And it's so unpredictable. So in the beginning, when I came back to the hospital um, and going into the scrubbing and going into the cases, uh, there was a certain, certain amount of fear. And that, that fear uh, was really palpable to me. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, um, I knew that I had to overcome that fear and 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 help the people that is entrusted me to, uh, to to operate on them. So, you know, I, I I think I think that overcoming and 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 kind of talking to um, and getting over sort of this uh, sort of quote unquote trauma. I think you have to rely on uh, your mentors and your friends. And uh, of course, my, my wife at home, uh, she's been a great support. And, and really, uh, I began to reach out and, and talk to um, you know, my, my mentors like uh, Dr. Wang, Dr. Warren, who's my, my chairman, Clarence Watridge, and really just talk, talk through them. It's, it's almost like a surgeon's one-on-one therapy where you kind of talk about sort of like this in, in this format where you talk about the case from beginning to the end and then and then really try to dissect you know what what I could have done differently at each stage um, and when you go down that rabbit hole though you got to be careful not to get stuck on blaming myself for everything I, I and I think as a surgeons we tend to do that um, but um, after the first few cases, I think I was able to sort of overcome um, that that sort of fear of failure from from my surgeries, and and I think you know 
um, the, the things that I learned from this is that, that, you know, you begin to realize sort of the consequence of your surgical decision. Um, and I think you read on papers that these, there are complication rates after these deformity surgeries and you add them all up and it's over hundred percent. So it's really which one you're going to get. Uh, but, and, and that's a very, uh, sort of removed way of thinking about it. And, and, and when you see it in real life, the patients really get stuck with these huge price to pay post-op and it really impacts their lives. And, you know, one complications can lead to another and sort of a snowball effect. So, you know, um, and these things can really top build on top of one another. So um, when I see these cases again, it always reminds me that these are sort of the potential complications that could happen. And I think because of that, I'm able to sort of counsel the patient better afterwards because I've, I've lived through it. Yeah, John, know. you know, that's that's really very, very um, kind of you to share with us such, such an intimate um, problem that you faced here. And I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. I think that uh, you shared something with us that that all surgeons, senior, mid-level, and, and inexperienced can learn a great deal from. So um, on behalf of our listeners and JP and myself, thank you for coming on a Nurse Surgery Podcast today. Thank you, guys. Well, that was a phenomenal story from John Yoon. Um, now it's just me and Dr. Wang here with a little closing thoughts about the story and, and some reflections. Uh, you know, Dr. Wang, we were just talking about, and we kind of got into this with John, about how all of these issues that he faced had almost nothing to do with the surgery itself, except that this was the inciting event. He did the surgery, he executed the surgery and made no surgical errors. But then in the physiologic and pathologic cascade of what happens to the human body after a major trauma, albeit a controlled trauma, like this size of a surgery, uh, he faced all these complications that came on the medical post-operative side of things with the patients. And I'm sure, as you said, this is something all surgeons deal with, but it is really interesting to think that this all came from the medical side of things, however good of a technical surgeon you may be. Well, you know, JP, you're right, but I, I, I agree with what you're saying, but I want to be contrarian here for a minute. I think that, and it's not a criticism, by the way, John, John was sharing with us a very heartfelt case and he was very honest and it's very hard to be honest with yourself and live with it. But I would say that um, when we say the case went perfectly, what do, what do we really mean? Like you hear it all the time, like case went perfect. What does that really mean? And what are we really saying? And how do we define perfection or adequacy of what we're doing? And I'm not saying that there are any missteps. I mean, these surgeries are, are phenomenally um, um, burdensome on the patient's physiology and anatomy. Uh, I mean, how, how do you define that? How do you say, well, this, how do you know the surgery went well, right? It's like they said, you know, the, the surgery went well, the patient didn't do, do so hot, right? That kind of thing, right? Right. I mean, that's a really good point. And, you know, something that I still think about, I picked up from you in the OR when I was a medical student was the Sun Tzu quote that you, you often say at work that uh, the perfect is the enemy of good, right? And so we all, we all go out there wanting to do something perfect and we get so focused on the minutia or... I think the example you used to give is tumor surgeons who try to chase down every last little cell that they end up doing more harm than good and, and hurting something because they're chasing things out at that border 
I guess in the setting of spine, you try to get your screws just right. You try to get your decompression just to that 100% instead of stopping at 97%. And you're chasing that idea of perfection that you can't just settle for giving someone a good outcome, a good surgery safely. Yeah, you know, I used that quote three times today in clinic. I said to the patient, you know, the patient goes, how am I going to do it? I'm like, well, the good news is I'm not one of those surgeons that tries to get perfect x-rays. And, uh, you know, not that I want the x-rays to not look good, but I actually found that the surgeries that technically I felt the most satisfied with at the end did more poorly than the ones that I was kind of, I felt were kind of fucked up. Like, I, mm. like, you know, I'll be screaming at people and like saying, this is horrible. We're going to, this is going to go very poorly. And maybe because of that, it seems like those people do well, or maybe the screws don't look so hot, but for some reason, and this is maybe almost like God playing with us, like torturing us where we say, wow, that was the fastest, most efficient, most perfectly, um, perfect appearing x-ray image. And then this happens. I don't know. I don't, maybe that's not a universal experience, but I've said that a lot in the OR that I don't understand it. And maybe it's just that we're so, so inadequate in general. Well, I mean, you know, this is the junior resident perspective, but I find myself oftentimes standing across a patient from a senior resident, from an attending, and we're decompressing. And I often find myself having this thought where I'm like, you know, I, I might be stopping right now. And I always wonder to myself, how you, Dr. Wang, how the, the real pros, the authorities in the field, how you know when you've decompressed enough, so to speak, how you know that you've done enough. And that's kind of the question you started with. How do you define perfect? There's some evidence in cranial surgery for a decompressive hemicrany. They'll have an actual area of bone that you want to achieve for a quote-unquote adequate decompression. To my knowledge, there is no evidence in spine and so there are times where I sit and I'm looking at the fecal sac and it looks much better. And the, you know, the attending of the senior will feel around. And I just don't know what science there is to everybody's uh, personal definition of adequate decompression or that perfect that you're talking about. And obviously it's just something born of years and years of experience of seeing some degree of surgical change and then seeing what the patient says when they wake up, like you're talking about, not the x-rays, but what the person says. So how have you, in your decades of practice, kind of settled on what you're comfortable seeing in front of you and saying, all right, it's time to close. We're done. You know, it's interesting. You know, uh, Barth Green said this to me once when I was a fellow here in Miami. He said, you know, isn't that just a fundamental thing about neurosurgery that in none of our surgeries is there a very defined point at which this is the stopping point? And I think... Mm -hmm. When I, when I consider, you know, we often hear the residents say the microdiscectomy is the hardest procedure to learn. And I, I say to them, well, that's because it's a simple enough procedure that you've, um, you've parameterized the different factors involved in it. But you do realize that there's parts that you don't know. And when I think about teaching residents, I think the, the, the procedures that are easier to master are truly those that have definable starting and stopping points. And you think about a lot of the orthopedic operations, there's like, if you do A, B, C, and D like this, then you're going to be fine. And almost yeah. none of our operations are like that. And the operations that are more like that, like ACDF, are easier to teach, not technically easier, but easier for people to say, this is the consistent result you'll get if you just follow these steps. And then the really hard parts are the judgment calls. Everybody knows the case of a tumor on the brainstem where the attending says, just leave that piece alone. And some resident goes to take it and it destroys a human, right? We've all heard those stories like in every institution. Yeah. Um, 
the enemy of, of good really is perfection, but then we all want perfection. And here I think, you know, in John's case, um, you know, this is the classic problem in spine and neurosurgery that we have great intentions. We know we need to do these things well, and we care. And we're so well-trained. And you said it well, JP, that, you know, doctor first, surgeon second. And I know John, John is an excellent doctor. And, um, you know, we try to get better and better. I wanted to ask him though, did, after this case, was there a period of time when he just wouldn't tackle the big stuff, you know, and, and we all feel that internally, or does he just go on? What do you think, JP? I mean, what do you think is a normal reaction to that? Well, I mean, and that's why I did ask him what it was like going to work each day and, and signing people up for new surgeries and doing surgeries that he had planned before this happened. And obviously, as he said, that was weighing on him, as I, as I imagine it would on anyone. I know that when I make mistakes, sins of commission, even at my own level of junior residency, things that I'm told I'm not responsible for, but feel responsible for if I'm the one who enacted a complication or things that no one could argue are genuinely my mistake. I know I carry that with me and I uh, try not to be distracted by that and try not to let it cloud my judgment or diminish my confidence in making the next decision for what I think has to be done and then enacting that. Um, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to give you a parallel to your Rene LaRiche um, quote that you opened this mini series with, and I'll tell, uh, we're going to go over a little bit, but it's an important story. When I was a young attending and I was at USC and um, I, I want to say I was one of the first, I think I was the third person on the West coast to do an MIST lift. Uh, and I, I apologize if it sounds arrogant, but it was very early and mm. nobody really knew how to do these procedures. Larry Koo, Sylvan Palmer, there were a handful of people. Fessler and Foley had just done one or maybe a handful of cases. And I started doing them. I did uh, my first couple and they were fine. And on my third case, I had a lady and we were working through 14 millimeter tubes. We didn't have the right cages. It was, it was very different back then. And she woke up with a caught equina syndrome mm. and then uh, not complete, but you know, she had something like that. And then I scanned her the next day and she had like graft material in her canal because we were working mm. through such small tubes. And I waited another day and a half before I took her back to surgery. And it was going through my mind as John was saying this, that if I was honest with myself, there was a embarrassment, a fear, a, 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 a want, not wanting to know, right? And it cost a couple days. Now right. that patient eventually got better, not totally well. And I stopped doing MIS surgery for a year. Wow. And I, I don't want to name the patient, but um, I, I saw this patient again about a year after surgery. And this person was not totally normal. And uh, I, I told the patient, you know, just so you know, I haven't done these surgeries, even though I was one of the first. And the person looked at me and said, why would you do that? And this is the analogy to Rene LaRiche, which is that in spine surgery, it's not like cranial. You don't really kill people usually, right? I mean, it shouldn't happen. And and the patient said to me, why would you ever do that? You told me you were one of the first. You, I knew this. And you should continue doing that so that things can be better for f future patients. Mm. And it really shocked me. And this is coming from a patient who was harmed by this, right? Um, that the capacity for patients to teach us, um, not just with their bodies, but with their minds and their, their spirit, is really tremendous. I think about that patient all the time. Yeah, you know, the, the interesting thing about that 
Rene uh, LaRiche quote, actually the first person I ever heard that from was you, and you actually had what I, I think is a, a classic Mike Wang addendum to that. You said, every surgeon has a graveyard, every surgeon goes there to pray, and then you said, the good ones go there more often. And that that little addendum you put on it has really stuck with me and, and partially inspired this whole series that we're doing. Um, I, I think one point, though, that I do want to hit on, because I honestly just want to hear your opinion on this before we wrap, going back to that question of perfection and executing perfectly, you know, we, we, we went deep into what perfect can mean, what good can mean in surgery, in neurosurgery, spine surgery in particular, but I think it's easy to hear this story, and at least my first reaction just from a common sense perspective is, could that have been avoided, right? Was this just sheer dumb luck? We have all these procedures, all these protocols. Someone has a major spine surgery. They have risk factors for a blood clot. We start our chemical, mechanical prophylaxis on day one or day three or what have you. We all have our rules and our evidence for them. So if everything goes according to plan, we won't say perfect, but it it's executed well. Everything's according to plan. We're on protocol. And then the patient gets this asymptomatic pulmonary embolus. So then they, he started the anticoagulant and so on and so forth. And everything is done by the book every step of the way. And this is chemical. This is molecular bad luck that the patient is facing. Was this avoidable? Is there anything that could have been done to prevent this happening for the patient? Or did John just experience, and more importantly, did his patient just experience being in that other tail of the population curve in that smaller percentage of the risk that we quote for even embarking on this endeavor to start with? Yeah, I mean, we can always Monday morning quarterback it, right? And you know, I, I would love to pose that same question you just did so elegantly to to master surgeons out there who've done 10, 20,000 surgeries, more than me. Um, but I am reminded of Marty Weiss's quote, which is there's only three kinds of surgeons who don't get complications, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's such a great quote, right? The three kinds of surgeons that don't get complications are liars, people who are too stupid to recognize the complications, and people that don't operate, right? And right. and that's there's a truth to that. You roll the dice enough on this, um, you're going to have stuff like this happen. So I am really looking forward to our next guest uh, and getting deeper into other aspects of interesting cases. Uh, JP, thanks again for inspiring us to do this uh, miniseries. Absolutely. Thanks for doing it with me. And thanks again to John for sharing that story. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.